I, uh, I bring you greetings from Salem Heights. Uh, ever since uh, I started in ministry there, I told Phil I was born when you were starting Valley. And uh, when I first got to the, the church at Salem Heights, uh, really, I cut my teeth in ministry on stories about Phil Howard. The pastor that was at Salem Heights uh, was a, an amazing pastor. He was gifted exegete. He absolutely loved the Word of God, was transformed um, by not only the reading of the Word of God, but he was transformed in a meeting, and I'm sure you've probably heard the story. I don't know if you've shared it here, Phil, where at a little country church in Cherry Grove, he was doing the work and laboring away and preaching the Word, uh, but he was preaching as a shepherd that was hammering the nails of wood together rather than welding them with a holy fire. And you came and you began to pray, and that prayer overwhelmed not only that place, but overwhelmed a pastor. And he looked back to that time as a time he was forever changed. In fact, what I was told when I first came into ministry was you might be really good in the Word, and you might have a lot of good plans, and you might have a lot of exciting ideas, but you're nothing if you're not God's man. And if you're not on your knees. And uh, so I'm thankful for that. It's been a testimony to me and your passion for prayer. Uh, I'm glad to see that it's not just in you. It's in all of your people. Uh, I really want to take that back to our church, that intercessory prayer time that you guys have right here in the service. Uh, what a meaningful thing. Um, Phil was asking me, what do I want to accomplish this morning? And uh, anytime a pastor has another pastor into the pulpit, he's nervous about what the answer might be. What do I want to accomplish? I really want you to hear my heart, and I think I have, uh, as much as a passion for expository preaching, I also have an encourager's heart. Um, we had a church uh, that up until about 10 years ago, we had a passion for the Word. We absolutely love uh, reading God's Word, and it had filled us as a congregation. But we were not seeing fruitful ministry in our city. Uh, in fact, I, I put it this way, that there was a season where at Salem Heights, when we would go into the mission field, we would search for churches and for pastors and for a people that loved their city so much, we could come and join with them in the work where they were at, in their location. So when we go to Guatemala, we go to a little town of Salama, we would uh, run into a congregation and a pastor who knew people in the community, and he was engaged with them, and we would join with them in the work. So I began to ask our leadership team, are we the kind of church we would want to join with? And in a broken spirit, we agreed that we were not. We had a lot of truth but it wasn't spilling out of the cup. So we began to pray, Lord, how do we change that experience? How do we get to a new place? If I were to share something with you this morning, it's been that in the last 10 years, in fact, in particular, the last five, we've seen a transformation at our church. And I just want to come into another church that's well-fed and has a stronger passion for prayer and a zeal for ministry over the testimony of years. I just want to be uh, one of the, the fat, sleek cattle in one good field, helping to lead a bunch of other cattle into a new field. I'm praying uh, that your heart will be not just tickled but inflamed, that you will be impelled to go yourself and do at least a short-term mission and pray, Lord, how will you use me either in the mission field there or as a missionary here? How will you use me? So that's my goal this morning. 
Matthew 28 is uh, a passage that is read quite often at missions conferences. In fact, it was so common for a period of time that men began to try and find other verses to launch us into missions. But I think it's critical that we understand it. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. And I think they may have that even... Uh, I'm saying if you've got a Bible, you share it with somebody around you, you see this in the Word of God. But let's stand real quickly together and read this portion of Scripture. This is God's word, his statement. Jesus, as he is leaving, launching the church age, uses these words. And it says, now 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you believe that he said that? He did. You may be seated. Father, as we look this morning at this passage, I pray that you would just overwhelm us with a sense of calling, that there would be a desperate need in our hearts to, to get this fire that's within us out and to share it with those that are around. And I pray that at Valley, that there would be such a bright light that the community could not ignore you. That they wouldn't just be sharing the gospel verbally, but that they would be hands and feet of the gospel. They would be reaching into broken communities and meeting needs all in the name of Jesus. That they would be sharing the gospel around the world, hands, feet, and mouth. Father, I pray that you would ignite them and that you would use these words this morning to fill us up with truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, each time that I come to this passage, and you have to when you do missions very often, uh, address Matthew chapter 28, there are different things that strike me. Uh, in one season it was, it says now there were 11 disciples. That seems like a shockingly few, doesn't it? To launch into what we now know as Christianity around the world. What an amazing work God does. It says they worshiped him and some doubted. I'm impacted by that. Uh, is it possible that even this morning, as a believer, because of circumstances in your life, you are filled with doubts? Do you know that God can use you even in the middle of that doubtful state? He can use you. This morning, he wants to use you. And you might be doubting that he can use you, but doubt is quite often how we come to the cross, isn't it? I'm struck by that. I'm struck by the idea that we are to uh, baptize all nations. Not just immersing them in water, which is very important, but also to immerse them in the truth of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and, and teaching them. We aren't just to make decisions, we're to make disciples. But the thing that struck me for this morning is this statement here, go therefore and make disciples. Um, probably you have been taught that that word go is uh, a participle there. It's the idea that as you are going, the implication is pretty strong. I just am going to launch off from this place in front of you, and as I'm lifting up, I want you to understand, I know that at some point somebody's going to get hungry. You're going to have to leave the mountain and go down and get some food. Somebody's going to leave, and as you are going from this place where I launch out, as you are going, from the moment you leave this place, the presence of God, Christ is, is lifting up. He says, I have now launched you in to a missionary movement. As you are going, do this. From the time you leave the mountain, you're going among your people. You're going to go into your city. You're going to go into your homes. Preach, share, evangelize as you are going. The question I have for you this morning is, where are you going? 
Where are you going? I uh, grew up in a family of fishermen. I was fishing with my dad uh, from the time that I was three, three years old. And in the Green family, at three years old, you get a fishing rod and you better catch a fish, all right? Or you're going to be in the boat a long time. Three years old, we get a fishing rod. At 10 years old, we get a fly rod because Peter, James, and John were fly fishermen. There's a passion for fishing. We would go out fishing all the time, but I can remember one time my dad wanted me to have an experience of fishing out on the ocean. We lived just a little bit inland in some rivers. Most of our fishing was done on rivers, so he takes me out into the bay. And while we were out there, he shows me on the way out the channel markers and the harbor lights, and he shows us the direction we're supposed to come in. I asked him if I could take the wheel, and he says, well, here's the thing. When you grab the wheel, you need to understand something. From the moment that you've launched out off of the shore, you're in peril. You need to chart a course or you're going to run aground. You need to chart a course or you're going to drift. George Sweeting, a, a pastor from yesteryear, actually said it this way when he was talking about believers and even the lost. He says, uh, like lost ships on the sea, nobody drifts into safe harbor. Nobody drifts into safe harbor. I'm going to ask you this morning to chart a course. On the way back in, we would line up those harbor lights. We would line up the channel markers, and you would follow with the bow of your boat. I'm going to hit this place, and then this place, and then this place, and it would guide the boat safely home. There is a channel that you are called to run, and the harbor lights and the, the channel markers are fixed. It's God's word. He has showed you the direction that you need to go. Amen? He, kn- he has already told you what you're supposed to be about. All I want to do this morning is just show you some of the channel markers that fell in place for Salem Heights Church, how God led us to a place where we are now seeing a, a thriving evangelistic spirit uh, rock our people. In your notes, it says Mark was moving quickly up the corporate ladder in his biotech company in the Research Triangle Park. A former Division I football-wide receiver, he was good-looking, uh, charismatic, and smart. The business world was wide open before him. He had nowhere to go but up. But Mark was beginning to feel uneasy. He wanted to accomplish something more with his life than topping an organizational chart. Over long lunches and Bible studies, he told me that pursuing a seven-figure salary no longer cast a spell over him that it once had. Although he was well up his way on the ladder of success, he had already figured out that he was leaning against the wrong building. Mark shocked his CEO and almost everyone else he knew. He resigned his role as vice president and moved overseas to pioneer an investment portfolio focused on raising capital for kingdom-oriented for-profit companies working in the 1040 window. That's the least evangelized part of the world. Today, Mark lives with his wife and three children in one of the most unreached cities in Southeast Asia, where he creates platforms for kingdom-minded work and shares Christ with high-powered Asian businessmen. Total formal seminary training, zero hours. Ordination status, unordained. Clear Damascus Road type calling experience, yet to happen. Total cost to the church, zero dollars. Mark upgraded from paying consumer to enlisted soldier. And as a result, the gospel is spreading through a part of the business community in Southeast Asia that I, this is uh, Pastor Greer speaking here, that I, as a pastor, like never, or likely would never penetrate by moving there on a tourist visa and opening an English corner. I believe in the future, the success of the spread of the gospel in unreached places lies in large part in the hands of business people 
like Mark, and I believe his potential lies largely untapped. There are many like that man in here this morning. Once again, we were uh, in our recent history a well-taught, well-discipled church. We had few that were active in the field. But we came under the conviction that we needed to see more people energized outside the four walls of the church. Uh, We wanted it to be spirit-led. And so what we actually did was we looked around at our leadership team and we said, before we can ask the people to go, we need to have all gone on a short-term mission trip and ask the Lord to do something significant in our life. And we actually made the declaration, if we won't go, then we should be off the team. We go before we tell them to go. We're not going to ask somebody else to build God's kingdom or build a kingdom for us. We're asking the Lord to begin a work in us that would spread like a fire to our people and out. And our leadership team was changed. We did a process called the uh, FADE. It was a faith and discipleship experience where we challenged 750 people in our church Over five years, we asked them to go on a short-term mission trip and begin to pray, Lord, how are you going to use me as I finish my life on this earth? And I'm thankful to say that we saw the 750th person go on a short-term mission just this last year. Uh, And our our church is popping with people that uh, before we would have never even probably welcomed, I'm sad to say. And now the gospel is going forward. How did that happen? Four declarations, four observations for you this morning. The first thing is this. This is what was in our heart as a leadership team. We observed these things in Scripture, and we held them to be true, and they began to break out of us. The first thing we knew is something that uh, you will probably agree with. You've read these passages. But we recognize the theology of this situation. The church age was launched with the words, go and make disciples. This was Jesus' passion. I left you uh, scriptures in there that you can read on your own during the course of the week. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that. Some people uh, argue whether or not the gospel is evident or, or the desire to go into the nations is evident in all four. It's evident in all four of the gospels. His passion was to see his men be energized for the church age, to see the world reached, to see them go out. In Luke, which is a book that we've been studying at our church, in Luke chapter 24, Christ is speaking to a group of men and he says, just like the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior was necessary, just like that was proclaimed in the scriptures, so also is evangelism. I am asking you to go. It's just as important a part of the process as the cross. I want you to not just hear these truths. I want them to inflame you and go, he says. Evangelism is part of the process. It was Jesus' passion, but it was also the apostles' passion. Uh, Turn to Romans 15. I think we have them for the screens here. Romans 15, verses 20 and 21. This is Paul speaking. He says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. One of the things Paul understood is that missions happens every single time you leave the comforts of your home to another location. I told somebody I was going to San Francisco to preach. They said, that's missions work. (laughs) We're in a comfortable little place. The largest city that I'd ever been in was 200,000 up there in uh, Salem. I grew up in a little burg. In southern Oregon, I like to run with rednecks. We're proud to call ourselves rednecks. Hound dogs ought to be in the bed. 
That's where they belong. Chickens, that's what it'll, uh, that's a coop. That's not a coop. That's our bedroom. We would sleep in rough places. We come into this refinery, and uh, it made us nervous. But do you know that the men in Roseburg needed the gospel just as much as somebody in Salem? He says, I want to go anywhere where Christ has not been named in order to proclaim the gospel. Do you know that Paul never actually left really his nation? He was Roman, right? So here we worry about whether or not we're going far enough away. Where was Thessalonica? It's in Rome. Where's Ephesus? It's in Rome. Where's Rome? It's in Rome. Everywhere Paul goes, he's in Rome. You know, there's parts of this country where I need a translator. There is. I go into the south. I can't speak. I can't speak y'all. I struggle with it. We go into those places, and he is saying, at that moment, I am called to preach the gospel in places where he is not named, and I want to see him named. I want to see his name there. There is a tragic statistic. Only 1%, less than 1% of all money given in churches around this United States during the course of this year, less than 1% of that will go to reach an unreached people group in the 1040 window. Less than 1%. Millions who will pass away during the course of this year without an investment dollar. I would, I would beg you to consider how can we reach those people while being faithful at home. It was the apostles' passion. It was also the passion of the early church. You can't get past the first seven chapters of Acts without seeing evangelism and amazing responses to the gospel and glowing reports about what God was doing here and there and all around. There is a passion that was in the early church, but it was also the passion of the persecuted church. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, was really impactful to me when we began to, to look at evangelism, where it says Saul, and we know what he was doing, right? He's standing there over the execution of a, a deacon that had become an evangelist in that community. He stands there angrily, uh, in agreement, and it says, and there arose that day at Saul's hand such a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem that they were all scattered through the regions of Judea, Samaria, Except for the apostles. Where did the apostles stay? They stayed in Jerusalem. They said, if the ship's, if the ship's on fire, we're going to go down with the ship. They stayed there to help those who had come to Christ and manage the mess. The apostles stay behind. Well, how can the gospel go out? Acts 8, 4. And it says, now those who were scattered, that's all the rest of the believers, not the apostles, went about doing what? They're preaching the word. Notice it doesn't say, now those who were scattered went and they huddled and they cuddled and they puddled. No, that's not what it says. They didn't go out in fear. They went about praising God. Yeah, it's important. We're going to make sure our children are safe. We're going to move to this new place, but we're going to tell everyone about the glory of knowing Jesus. Amen? No matter what's going on in your life, there ought to be something written on your face that you're going to ride through the storm and, and you're going to engage with him. You're going to be drawn to him rather than the mess that's down here, right? You can't beat seasickness looking at the waves. you got to look at the horizon in the same way we're looking off at the cross. That's what they were doing. They were saying, hey, this might be a mess right now, but Jesus is greater. It was their passion. It was Jesus' passion, the apostles' passion, the early church's passion. It was the persecuted church's passion, but it's also the mark of a healthy church. Colossians 4, 2 through 5, Paul's calling out to them, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Be thankful you can come to him. At the same time, pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, 
that I might make it clear how I ought to speak. Walk with wisdom toward outsiders. I want you to hear this phrase at the very end. Let your speech always be gracious. Verse 6, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here is Paul, and what is he saying? Hey, man, I'm stuck here in this place, and there are sometimes vile things that are happening around me. Will you pray that I'll know just exactly what to say so that the gospel goes forward? And then he says, and by the way, you, watch how you speak, because you're going to have the same opportunity as me. This isn't just for the assigned or somebody that's full-time, right? This is for the believer. Here's the first thought we had as we came to this conclusion. Uh, We are either a missionary or a mission field. I want that to sink in. You are either a missionary. You are either proclaiming the word of God and being transformed by it. It's either glowing in your life or somebody ought to be speaking to you and saying, do you know my Savior? Now, you might think that's a bold statement. Let me just share with you a statistic that was absolutely... um, It was glorified in our ministry as far as we saw it, but it was shocking to me. Statistically, around the United States, 88% of our youth will graduate high school and leave the church and not return. That is a horrifying statistic. It is not because Jesus is not enough. Do you know that? It's not because he's not enough. 88%. But that statistic turns upside down. The, the most dramatic swing in any statistical survey I've ever read. And I'm going to give the stats to Phil where we got all those uh, pieces of information. But that goes from 88% to 5%. Hinged on one thing. If mom and dad are caught sharing the gospel with their kids in a foreign context, only 5% ever leave. They catch fire. They catch fire. Here's what I'm asking you. For the sake of your children... Will you get involved sharing the gospel and telling others of the glory of the cross while your kids are near? If they watch you on fire, they catch it. Every single person in my family, all of my extended family, they they fish. They know how to fish because my dad was a fisherman. That's what he did, right? If you love sports, I'm betting that there's somebody in your family that would say, man, we, we may not love the TV every Sunday afternoon in NFL season, but we know when to shout, right? We know who to cheer for. We know what team. My son knows you can't be a Boston fan and live in the house. All the family's from New York, okay? You can live outside but not in. They catch us far greater when it's spiritual. If you're on fire for the cross, your kids will catch it. Second observation here. So first one is this is the, the, the word that was spoken, launched the church age, and it was go. But the second thing that really struck us was that the key sign of spirit filling was the proclamation of Jesus. Key sign of spirit filling. When the spirit fills John the Baptist, what does he do? He starts proclaiming the Lord. I would have you and encourage you to look at these verses. Each time it says the Holy Spirit will come upon them and then it says what they will be speaking about. When the spirit fills Elizabeth, she proclaims a blessing over a relative. When the spirit fills Zechariah, he prophesies about the glory of the coming of Jesus. When the spirit fills up the disciples at Pentecost, they all declare the gospel in multiple languages. When the Spirit of God fills up Peter, what does he do? With boldness, he preaches to the rulers uh, that Christ was their only hope of salvation. 
Spirit fills the disciples once again. They speak the word of God boldly in the face of persecution. Acts chapter 4. When the Spirit fills Paul, he immediately begins to preach in the synagogues. Acts 9. The key thing I would have you, there, there's two actually here. Uh, first, notice all the personality types. Elizabeth seems timid to me. John the Baptist seems crazy, right? Here's a hairy guy out in the wilderness shouting at anybody that would come by, and here's Elizabeth hiding in the back room just proclaiming, do you know that God's been faithful to me? That he answered a prayer that Zacharias and, and I had, and we had dropped that prayer 30 years ago, and all of a sudden, here we are holding this child, and she looks at Mary and says, do you know that the one that's in your womb is my Lord? She prophesies that. Isn't that amazing? All different personality types. Bold Paul, timid disciples, impulsive Peter. There isn't a personality type that you aren't shown to be in Scripture. There's not somebody here that somehow Scripture missed. Every single one of you can do it. The key ingredient is this, being filled with the Spirit. I, I just want to bring out some balloons really quickly. Maybe I can uh, find these. Oh, there we go. I got the... The Holy Spirit has his ability, right? But we have actual visible helpers right here that can help out. Let, let me just show you this. Let me grab that one and the, uh, and the weaklings. This, you know what this is right here? This is a spirit-filled Christian. Do you know that? Look how happy that is. Spirit-filled. Here's something that's awesome about this. Thank you so much. Here's a spirit-filled Christian. You want to know what happens? There, there is uh, something about this balloon that's different than this one, okay, right? Look at that. What's the difference? This one, as soon as you come in, if I ask a child, which balloon do you want? Do you want to know which one they want? They want this one. Why? They can see it. Uh, it's elevated. It's naturally up. It looks like it's going to be full for a long time. You know what else? You can lead this wherever you want it to go. This one, you may lose it. I don't know where it's going to go. It'll pop out. It's going to land on the floor. Somebody's going to kick it. They're always nervous about this one. But this one, you always know right where it is. In fact, there's a chance if we cut this string right here, I just might lose control of this one. It's going to drift off because it's so elevated and so excited. This is a picture of a spirit-filled believer. You want to know what the difference between uh, this one and this one is? It's what's inside. When we talk about how are we going to get a program going, I'm going to tell you something right now. There is no program that can energize saints. Do you know that? There is no way. You know what a program is? This one can actually be elevated too. I can make sure that this one's elevated. You know how I make sure this one's elevated? I got to smack it. All right? Smacking is not one of the benefits. There we go. I'll put that right there for you guys for later. Smacking is not one of the benefits that we're supposed to offer as a church. Do you know that? We install a program, and what we do is we get somebody to govern that program, and what are they doing every single week? They're out there saying, saints, come on, let's uh, And they're smacking you up to where you're elevated. Well, you're only as good as long as you've been smacked, right? Here's the difference. The difference is the Spirit of God is inside, and all of a sudden i got to say, be careful, man, you might drift off. Oh, no, he's going to go to a foreign country. Oh, no, he's going to go over there and he's going to participate in that church. Uh-oh, a church just sprung up in his house. We're going to have to do something about that. They're always about to take off. All you got to do to lead them is hang on to that string, and that's because they're just tied to something greater. The question in your life is, how come I can't share the gospel? How come I have not been effective? Can I ask you, it's not about a program. It's not a list of rules. You don't got to find some new verse that hasn't been discovered in 2,000 years. You got to say, Lord Jesus, what am I doing 
to impede the Holy Spirit's work in my heart. Because if I'm on fire, people just about have to catch it. What is it that you've got to do in me in order for me to experience transformation? A sign of spirit filling is that the word will just pour out of you. Not programmatically, but it will fill up you and it will outflow. Now, Phil, I, I think I'm going to run out of time here. But I wanted to share a, a couple of things. It says in Acts chapter 14 that when Paul got back from the mission field on his first missionary journey, he was so excited about what he did that they gathered up the saints and they shared about their journey. Phil actually asked me, would I share some of the stories about what God's been doing at our church? And this was the conviction. When I was growing up in ministry, I, I wanted to be a pastor like Phil Howard. I'm not just saying that for this morning. I wanted to see some experience where when I would hear what had happened in Valley in the early years, when I heard what happened in Cherry Grove, when I saw what happened in our church when you preached, it was like revival was in your hip pocket and things would just catch fire around you. I can't howl out the hymns like you do, but I know the same Savior. And so I began to say, Lord, just would you do something like that? What, what stories we would hear about, I said I wanted to have. My family grew up with Adoniram Judson as a model. In fact, many people in our family are named either Adoniram or Judson, all the way down to my nephew to this day. His middle name is Judd because our family had supported him when he goes off. The first missionary sent out from the United States into foreign lands on this soil, our family was a part of supporting him. We were holding the rope. And we were impacted by the work. It went both ways, not just supporting him, but that impacted our family for generations. We wanted our story. We would hear those stories, and we would get impassioned. And I bet I'm speaking to a group of folks that loves to hear stories from the field. It would lead us. When we had active involvement, it leads you from hearing a story to actually living the story. The, the first picture I have is of Julio, Pastor Julio. I don't know if we have those... Uh, pictures on there, but uh, there was a man when we were in the field, he lives in Guatemala in a little town called Salama, and he was a washed up businessman. He had $100,000 he had scraped together in a land where $30 a month is the average that every man makes. It's poverty. It's overwhelmingly uh, broke. Uh, it is a destructive location, but he had people invest in him, and he was doing business with some folks in the United States. And the, the business went sideways. And he comes back from a man who had everything to a man who had nothing. And he needed, in a land where $30 was considered average, he was on their welfare system. He was completely broken. He couldn't feed his family. He couldn't uh, live in his home. He was completely destitute. And one of his little girls was brought into the compassion program. She was brought into a church. She was given food, and they ended up giving food to the family. They gave them health care. They helped bring them along. And here's this destroyed man, and every single night before they would go to bed, they said, Daddy, part of the program is you're supposed to come in, and I, I, you need to pray with me. Will you pray with me? So he would sit there, and he said, well, I'll let you pray. And she began as a little girl to preach the gospel to her dad. And he went from hard and overwhelmed and bittered to broken, transformed. His marriage healed because he gave his life to Jesus because a little girl began to plant those seeds. And it was outreach from the states that made it possible. 
He now is a pastor. He's called into ministry. He runs a compassion center where now he, every single time a dollar comes in from the United States, he gets the name of the individual, the person that it's going to, he calls them into his office, and they all gather around and pray. They praise God that somebody would care about them. They take the letters and they put them on the wall, and they begin to, to go out into the neighborhoods and say, God's not just good to us in theory. He's good to us physically. Look at what change is happening. When we go to that location in Salama, which we go uh, every other year, we go back to that spot. We see about 90 different families that our church supports, and, and Pastor Julio is in the middle of them all, proclaiming Jesus, living out what it means to be gracious. We get to run into a saint that was saved as a result of the work. There's a little boy, though, in Guatemala. Yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? There's a little boy, and I, I wish we had the pictures here, David. I'll get them uh, for Phil. When we went into the dumps for the very first time, there was about 5,000 people living in the dump. They never leave the dump. It's the poorest location I've ever been in in my life. Inside this dump, uh, it is all the trash. It's the largest trash heap, Guatemala City, in all of Central America. And inside there, 5,000 people live and never leave. In a country where $30 a month is considered wealthy, they have nothing. All their clothing comes from the dump. All of their water comes from the dump. It's pressed out between the trash. It is a filthy, horrifying environment, and Guatemalans won't go in. So we took a team in. In fact, what we did was we went up to the bluff overlooking the dump, and there's buzzards that are circling all around us, and the filth and the smell of the location is horrifying. And there I stand with my wife and kids, and I'm saying, in the most dangerous street in Guatemala, what are we doing here? This is crazy. A gal that we were with introduced us to a family, and this little boy comes by. She goes, let me tell you a story about that boy. He looked at her just the day before, and he had said, Gabby, don't you ever wonder, doesn't it ever make you wonder when, uh, when you taste the bones? And she goes, make me wonder what? And, and they would dig in the trash for chicken bones. And he goes, doesn't it ever make you wonder what it would taste like with the meat on? And she begins to tear up. These kids, all these kids that are running around have been digging around the trash for the taste of chicken on the bone. They get in the bones and they're just sucking the end of the marrow, dreaming about what it would be like. And so a businessman that was with us it takes about 30 of these kids and they go to their, their version of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And he tells the waiter, you don't, don't say anything about the smell, don't say anything about their dress. I want to take them and I want you to give them chicken with the bones. Well, these kids all line up and it's like... It's Christmas. It's like Santa showed up in the room. They begin to open up their box, and there is chicken that's in there. And they take it one little bite, and they're so overwhelmed, they put it back in the box. They won't eat anymore. This is your chicken. My mom and dad have never tasted chicken. Can I take it to my mom and dad? Can I take it home to my brother and sister? This is how they are in the middle of their poverty, absolutely desperate to make sure that the others heard the good news. Why well, is it a faith like that? We're telling them the gospel. So we begin to share with them the gospel. David gives his life to Jesus. He goes home and shares his chicken, but the next time that we see him, he's sitting in a group of people, and we have this thing called the E-Cube. It basically is a series of pictures that talks about the separation 
the reality of hell and the fact that the lost will spend eternity there unless they have a relationship with Jesus and a picture of Christ on the cross and then a picture of a glorious empty tomb and then the, the decision that has to be made, if you will only decide today to give your life to Jesus by faith alone, you'll be saved. Isn't that amazing? That's the truth that's in there. And he is unpacking this little boy who just got chicken. Here's the truth of the gospel. It inflames his heart. He's sharing with a group of kids with a smile on his face. He's sitting there sharing the gospel the very next day. He could not wait to go to seminary. He ran right out the door and shared the gospel. We have uh, just a few minutes. I'll just tell you about two folks. Pierre and Laura Fien are a couple that we met at a pastor's conference. I grew up in the, the Northwest. Uh, I, I don't believe in my life I ever really did see a sense of segregation. I didn't see a sense of separation. I hadn't experienced um, what it, what it was to live in the United States and be among other human beings and not be accepted because of the color of your skin. I, it was foreign to me. We go to a conference and I see this couple from Haiti sitting in a cup and, and on the side and, and, and even at a pastor's conference, I'm, si I'm sickened to say it, Phil, but at a pastor's conference, a Southern Baptist conference, they were sitting alone, called to ministry and desperately alone. So we just said, well, come sit with us. I don't know. There shouldn't be any taboo about that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, there's not hard to find anybody more white than I, except for the blonde gal that was sitting with us. Laura Chica was there. And they were nervous to scoot around the table. They came to the table and sat. But we began to talk, and the Lord just impassioned our hearts to work alongside them. She had been saved out of trafficking in Haiti. She finally makes it out of all of that poverty. And her entire goal being in the United States is not to get wealthy and not to make it big and not to finally be safe and secure. She wants to go back and find other little girls that were about to be trafficked and say, Lord, I want to tell them about Jesus and that there is a greater way. So will somebody help us? She runs into Pierre, a first-generation Haitian-American, has all of his paperwork, his work, and he's uh, been in the Army for a period of years. They get married. He's called into ministry. They are now living in Haiti. And the Lord has allowed us to work alongside them as they start uh, a Haitian ministry. 35 little girls. It's the only uh, orphanage that's endorsed by both Haiti and the United States and is legal to, to take care of adoptions. Every single kid there has no parents officially. It's not like some where they check them in at the door and say, will you raise them for us? They have no, these were the girls that were most likely to be trafficked. And Lorfine is right there now, three years in the ministry, asking for others to come down. But not only is the gospel light going into the, the lives of these girls, but the entire community has seen what they have done. They can't imagine. You were in the United States and you're back here? Why? And they begin to share the gospel and a church is raised up and men are being discipled and it's going out through the hills from this little couple that we met. They're champions. Far more guts than I. I asked my wife the other day, do you think that we have it? Could we leave all and all of the comforts that we have and go do that? Their faith challenges me. The final one I would have you hear about is Mark Tinseth, a guy that grew up in our ministry. I could tell that Mark was irritated. He was overwhelmed. He was kind of struggling through certain things, uh, but a, a wonderful family been in our church for a long time, well taught. 
And he looked at me one day and he said, you know what, I, I'm just tired of being this kind of Christian. And I said, what kind? And he says, well, I sat there and I was bothered a little bit by the music. I've been irritated by your preaching. <laughs> I said, that's okay, my wife is too. I've been irritated by you. I've been bothered by the word. I, I just can't see. There's an itch in my soul that I can't scratch. I am bothered and overwhelmed. So he said, well, why don't you, there's a group that's going to India. Why don't you go to India? And remember, it says in Matthew 28, some doubted. He can use even you, Mark. And he goes to India with Bruce Wood, one of our elders. They end up in India, and he comes back, and he is in full repentance. He is broken in front of me, and he says, I, I want to take you to coffee, but he says, I, I'm, I'm almost afraid to share. He says, I went there, and I was bitter, and I was bothered, and I was blaming, and I was irritated, and, and then I began to see God use me. He says, I memorized the right scriptures and all this stuff, but I was not prepared for what I found. While I'm there, he says, do you know somebody was healed in one of the services? He says, I'm Baptist. Am I supposed to be here? That's what he said. Somebody shouldn't be getting better. He says, not only that, 1,000 people in that village gave their life to Jesus in one week. Folks, that's like Acts type stuff. That happened every single trip that he's been on and everyone that Bruce has been on. Every, the, the people in the village become all of a sudden open to the gospel. They're sharing the gospel. And people around are saying, wait, 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 I need you to tell my family. And they're running and they're bringing them in. 1,000 people. He came back and he says, I'm not supposed to tell anybody this. I, he said, why? I, I asked him why, and he said, I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't have enough faith for any of that to happen. I, it just began to happen. I, I'm on the field. He says, it doesn't seem right that I would get to experience these things. I said, Mark, can I tell your story down at Valley? He said that I could. But the admonition that he gives to every single person that's here is, would you go? He's timid. He said, don't ask me to come up on the stage unless you want to clean up around my feet. He said, uh, I can't talk in public. I can't share about things, but I can share Jesus when I'm on the mission field. It's mind-boggling to me. Active involvement leads you from hearing a story to living a story. Can I tell you something? Six years ago, we didn't have stories to tell. Six years ago, we had to wait for a missions magazine. We had to wait for somebody to come from a foreign land. We had to wait for somebody on the outside to come in and give us some picture of what is going on over there. Now the stories are filling our, our pews. They're, they're coming out of all of the congregation. People are going and sharing the gospel. And you want to know what? They're not satisfied with doing it in Guatemala or in Mexico or in Latvia or in Haiti. They're coming back and they're looking at our city saying, why can't we do this here and here and here? And so this summer... Our church is shutting down world missions, and for 10 weeks we're targeting Salem with the same kind of passion, money, uh, uh, agitation that sent us out into the field. All those now that have been trained are coming back, and they're saying, I'm picking my place, and I'm going to stay faithful until God calls me somewhere else. It is an exciting thing. That brings me to the last point. It was obvious when we think about evangelism, that you were left to be salt and light. It's a well-known statement. If God was to give us fellowship, uh, if we were to be saved right now and, and if, if the whole goal was to get perfect fellowship, we'd be in heaven. If the whole goal was that we would have perfect knowledge, heaven. 
If the whole goal was perfect encouragement or prosperity or a perfect healing, we'd be in heaven. But he saved you and left you here for the fellowship of the saints and to be salt and light. Amen? That's what he left you to do. I just want you to notice something. Can we turn the lights down in here really quick? Yeah, turn them all the way down. I want you to notice something. Keep coming. And we can hit this light on the stage too. Let's get rid of that one and just see what's up here on this vase. Can we kill that light up here? Can I have you notice something about this vase? Did anybody notice there was lights in there at the beginning? There have been lights in this vase from the moment that we walk into the building. Do you know that? Do you want to know why we never noticed them and they didn't attract you and they weren't drawing your attention? Where are you looking now? You're looking at the lights. Here in this moment, we can bring the lights back up. This is what I want you to understand. The lights were always just as bright, but you did not see them until the world goes black. It's possible that you could be in the middle of a trial here at Valley. It's possible that you could be in the middle of a trial in your life. Do you want to know that the world doesn't have an answer for suffering? They don't. What am I going to do when I'm suffering? What am I going to do when I'm near the end? What am I going to do when I'm going through pain? What am I going to do when I'm overwhelmed? And the light of the gospel, they look at you when you're in the middle of suffering and they say, what's the reason for the hope that you have? Why do you have hope when I'm so broken? Why do you have hope when I'm so destroyed? How come it is that, that you seem so encouraging and I'm at your hospital room? The light turns on. Do you want to know the light that is turned on all the way through Scripture? It's the light of the gospel of Christ. I'm not saved and stuck here on this earth. This isn't my final home. Do you know that? No matter what happens, I have a final place. I'm already registered. I'm already registered. I'm going. Someday I'm going to be with him. Yeah, amen? But I'm telling you, there's, there's a possibility that in the United States we could meet a time of instability. Do you feel it? All right? Have you seen any recent politics? Have you seen any recent nervous people out in the highways and byways at your workplace or whatever it is? Our world is nervous and overwhelmed, and we could, in a moment, end up in a slide. Do you want to know what is going to be attractive in the middle of that? It's the light of the gospel. And the worst time to turn the light on the worst time to strike a match is when the lights go out. The light had better already be on, right? They may not notice if it's prosperity, but when the world turns the light off, when God says, it's time, I'm going to let my people shine, they better already be inflamed with gospel passion. That's what will happen. So we got to go. It's, it's my time is well over. We'll deal with the objections on another day, Phil. No objections here. Here's what I would have you say. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask you right now to all bow your heads and close your eyes. Just bow your heads. Because I've got room even on a spring break mission trip for three families from Valley, should you want to go. I'm just going to pray this. Uh, with your head bowed, eyes closed, if you are feeling that the Lord is calling you to go on a short-term mission trip and begin to pray, Lord, how will you use me? If you this morning are feeling that call, would you just put your hand up in the air right now? I'll see it. Okay, I see those. Yes. All right. Hands in the air. Praise God. This is what I'm going to pray. You can put your hands down. I'm going to pray right now that God will send you 
that you'll be supported not only here, but that God will impassion you and that those hands that just went up, I'm going to ask God to use you as a lightning rod in this congregation, a picture of how he uses people inflamed for the gospel. Amen? Father, we ask you right now for this entire church, but especially for those that just raised their hands, their desire is to go on a trip. Their desire is to go and ask you to so work in them that they come back transformed, and we ask that you would make that happen. Father, that they would be able to see things on the mission field and in a training uh, moment that, that they would bring back to Valley and that you would use them so powerfully as an encouragement in the body, that they'd be so filled with the spirit that your fruit is evident in their life and that it would impact the lost in this city. Uh, that burg after burg in this outstretched area around San Francisco would be filled up with gospel passion because you have inflamed people and they're so attractive that people ask them, what's the reason for the hope of their calling? Father, I pray that you would use them. I pray that you'd overwhelm them, that you would send them and you would bring them back. And I pray also for this church that you would fill them up, well-fed, uh, people who love you, who desire to see your word lived out in their lives. Father, I pray now that you would just pour out that ability and that they would see that desire that's in their heart united with the ability that only your spirit can bring. Father, use them in Jesus' name. Amen.